Well, if I could, uh, first of all, express my thanks to the Christian Institute for the invitation to talk to you and for your welcome, uh, Ian. Uh, my subject is uh, what is man, and particularly man as the image of God. And so this is intended to be a study of the essential character of man as he was created, that is, as the image of God. And when we study the subject of man, we're studying ourselves. But we need to be clear that uh, for this uh, study, at least for this paper, we are not going to examine ourselves. We're not proceeding by way of self-examination, but by reference to the Bible. So our question is, what has God revealed about man in Scripture? Now, my outline, I want to follow three steps. The first step is to ask, what does the Bible mean when it says that man is created in or as the image of God? That's the first thing. What is this? And secondly, the important question, what was the effect of the fall? What was the effect of the fall upon us in Genesis 3? And then thirdly and last, uh, what are the implications for us today? So what does the Bible mean by the image of God? What happened when Adam fell? And what are the implications of this for us today? So first of all, we're going to ask the question, uh, what does the Bible mean uh, by man being created in the image of God? And the first place that we turn to in Scripture is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I want to begin by reading that. Uh, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, first of all then, under this heading, we are not going to go straight into that text, but the first uh, thing that we must do is to ask what the context of that text is. So first of all, before we narrow our attention on verses 26 and 27, we need to look at Genesis chapter 1 as a whole. And when we look at the whole chapter, we, we should realize that the chapter is uh, focusing our attention on the order that God imposed on creation. The chapter is particularly concerned with the order it's about order in creation. Uh, for example, in chapter 1, verse 2, you have the words, without form and void. That's the way it begins. It begins without form and void, and it is proceeding towards a goal. Now, particularly, if you have your texts open, you'll see in chapter 1, verse 4, uh, the words, God divided, God divided. Uh, in that verse, God divided light from darkness. And the verb in Hebrew, to divide, means to separate and to make a distinction. And that verb is repeated in verse 6, verse 7, 
verse 14 and verse 18. And what we see is that God is ordering time and space. He is making divisions, separations, and ordering time and space. And then in verse 11, uh, which speaks about the creation of plant life, we come across the phrase, each according to its kind, according to its kind. And here we are introduced to the idea of kinds or species. And that phrase or something similar is repeated in verse 12, verse 21, verse 22, verse 24 and verse 25. And in some of those verses more than once. And so we have this picture of God dividing what he has created into its categories and identifying all the different species. And in verses 21 through to 25, you have a kind of crescendo where it is according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, it builds up. And so the living creatures are divided into their many species. Uh, If you turn, uh, I don't mean to turn now, but if you look at the law of Moses in places like Leviticus 19.19, and Deuteronomy 22, 9-12, you will see that the law of Moses prohibited cross-breeding of species. You must not take uh, animals of different species and cross-breed them. It also prohibits the mixing of seeds to be sown. And what we are learning in the law is that, for example, the crossing of an elephant with a giraffe is abominable. And it is abominable, if you think about the crossing of an elephant with a giraffe, it is hideous. And it is hideous because it contravenes the order which God has imposed in creation. It violates God's order. And the implication here is that the created order is an enduring statute from God. And God requires men to respect what he has done in creation. And that includes, for example, the Sabbath day, the distinction in time over the Sabbath day, the male-female distinction, and the law of marriage. These are creation ordinances by which God is imposing order. Now, when we bear that in mind, then we should come to verse 26. And it's against that context that we realize that Genesis 1.26 does not say, God does not say, let us make man according to his kind. That is not what is said. In other words, God does not proceed with man as with the animals. What he does say is, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so the phrase, each according to its kind, which has been sustained through the animal creation, is abandoned at this point, and instead God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now there are two implications from this. The first is that man is not just another animal species. What the text of Genesis is doing is differentiating man from all the animal species. And secondly, man is being presented as essentially to be understood in relation to God. 
And so we have here some direction in our thinking. When we think of man, we must turn away from a comparison with the animals and look heavenward to God. Now, what we have to observe is this. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 are definitive of man. The the references in scripture to man as being in or as the image of God are very few. If you pick up a concordance and trace it through, you will discover that man as the image of God is referred to uh, in chapter, besides our text, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3 of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, and James chapter 3, verse 8. And that's it. Now, when you, when you think of so few references to the image of God, you may say, well, surely this is somewhat secondary or incidental. But that's not so. The fact that there are few references doesn't matter. What we have to observe is this, that this is the first thing that is said about man. Throughout the record of Scripture, the first thing that is said is that man is in the image of God. And we must secondly observe that this is the only thing that is said about man. In other words, we are not being given a list of things about man. We are being told one thing about him, and that he is in the image of God. That defines him. Now, when we narrow our attention to verse 26, we realize that two terms are being used. The terms image and likeness. And one of the key questions in the history of doctrine has been, why are there two terms in this text? Why image and likeness? Why uh, has the writer put two terms together? Is, Is there any distinction intended? Let's look at those terms for a moment. The term for image is the Hebrew word selim. And selim refers to a model. It's a model. Uh, when the Philistines returned the ark to Israel, they put in the ark models of golden, golden models of mice and tumors. And the word there is selem, image. It can also sometimes refer to an idol. Now, if you think of the term image, there are two uh, connotations to the word. One connotation is that the image is derived from an original. So there's direction in this term. You have to have an original in order to come down to an image. And secondly, in scripture, the term selem can sometimes have the idea of being quite insubstantial. For example, in Psalm 39, verse 6, the psalmist writes, Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Every man walks about as a shadow. And the word there is as a selem, as an image. And the idea is that man is not a very substantial being. He is soon uh, gone. And again in Psalm 73, verse 20, we read these words. As a dream when one awakes. A dream is not real. And so the word selem can have this connotation of being not real, a bit, a, bit, a bit light, transient, only an appearance. 
And yet, on the other hand, the term image can refer to an exact image. And so what happens is, with the term image, it needs definition from its context. When you use the word image, you have to say, well, what precisely is meant from the context? And so here we have, first of all, the term image, and then secondly, the term likeness, which simply implies a resemblance or a comparison. Whereas the term image is moving from an original to a copy, the term likeness is two-way. Uh, for example, two trees can be alike one another, like one another, without one being the original and the other being a copy. And so you have these two terms. That's what the terms means. The terms mean. Now, in the early church, and probably through the centuries, uh, most of the, of the early theologians have tried to observe a distinction between image and likeness. Uh, they have thought that these two terms denote two aspects of man. So, for example, Irenaeus, Tertullian, uh, one of them, uh, one idea they had was that the image referred to the body, whereas the likeness referred to man's spiritual side. And with Clement of Alexandria and Oregon, very similar things. The image referred to the constitution, whereas the likeness referred to man's moral side. And it may be that uh, these theologians were encouraged in that view because the Septuagint and the Vulgate insert the word and. So if you turn to the Septuagint, you read, let us make man in our image and as our likeness. But the word and is not there in Hebrew. Now, when we ask the question, are these two terms referring to different aspects? We have to say this, there is a semantic difference between those two terms. They are not perfect synonyms. For example, Christ is referred to as the image of God. But when it comes to man, he is spoken of as being in the likeness of man. But whatever the semantic difference between the two, and I've spoken about that, whatever the semantic difference, they do not point to an anthropological difference. In other words, although we can talk about subtle differences between the terms image and likeness, they, we should not try to deduce from that uh, a different, different aspects of the constitution of man. What I would suggest to you is that likeness qualifies the term image in order to form one concept. Now, later in Genesis, you find that the two terms are used uh, independently or interchangeably. In uh, Genesis 1.27, the writer is only using the word image. And in Genesis 5.1, he is only using the word likeness. And that is evidence that the words can do, one of those words can do duty for both. Now, we have to pay attention to the way in which we speak. And the next thing that I want to say to you is this. Uh, we should train ourselves to think like this. That man is God's image on earth. 
we read the text of Genesis 1.26 and we see the words on the page, let us make man in our image. But we should understand that that means let us make man to be our image. Uh, in the Hebrew, I believe that you have there uh, what is known as a baith essentiae. In other words, the phrase in our image is stating what man is. If you think of uh, uh, God, and then if you think of the concept of an image of God, uh, and then if you put man as a third step away, you have God, his image, and man. But the text isn't talking like that. It's talking about God and man as the image of God. Uh, One writer uses the term mirror. Now, this way of reading the text is supported by 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, uh, where we read words like this. He, that is referring to man, is the image and glory of God. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. He is the image and glory of God. Now, I feel that this should not stop us saying also that man bears God's image. But we have to be careful as to how we speak and how we think about this thing. Now, when the Bible speaks about man being the image of God, it is clearly emphasizing the dignity of man, the dignity of man. When we think of a text uh, like Isaiah 46.5, we read this question, To whom then will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? God is asking us, who will you compare with me? Then I think that underlines the astonishing nature of what is said in Genesis 1.26, where the Bible is saying, man in some way, is comparable to God. Now, I don't believe uh, for one minute that we should go as far as to think of equality. Because Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, clearly shows us that we are not talking about equality. But even despite that fact, the very fact of likeness is remarkable. The dignity of man is underlined even further when we realize that the image is connected with sonship. The image is connected with sonship. In Genesis chapter 5 verse 3, we read that Adam begot a son in his own likeness after his image. And there you see we have Adam and his son and his son Seth is being, we are being told that Adam's son Seth was his image or in his image, and it is connected with being his son. This, is, this, uh, this connection between image and sonship is confirmed in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, or at least indirectly confirmed there, where we are talk, it, it, it talks about us being conformed to the image of his son, conformed to the image of his son and and about us as being brethren or brothers. And although I don't want to refer to the text tonight, 
in Acts, uh, more than this, in Acts 17, 28 and 29, Paul talks about man being God's offspring with a creation reference. And so what we are looking at is the dignity of man and being the image of God is connected with being uh, sons of God. I think that this, uh, this closeness uh, of relationship with God is emphasized in Genesis chapter 2. If you ask the question, why are there two accounts of creation? Why are there two accounts of creation? Uh, then we have to see that these two accounts of creation complement one another. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, we have an account which focuses on the universal order of creation. It is universal in its perspective. Whereas in Genesis chapter 2, we have an account which becomes very, very personal and domestic. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, God is referred to as God. Whereas in Genesis chapter 2, he is referred to by name as the Lord. In Genesis chapter 1, the view of man is of mankind, whereas in chapter 2, it is of Adam and his wife. In Genesis 1, uh, the text speaks about male and female. In Genesis 2, we see the domestic implications of that in marriage and woman. In Genesis 1, we have the earth, whereas in Genesis 2, we have the Garden of Eden, the small context. Now, it's in the context of Genesis 2 that we get a glimpse of the intimate relationship between God and Adam in creation. We have a view of the Creator coming, as it were, uh, to shape man with his hands from the clay and to breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. That is a very intimate and close picture. So when we think of the image of God and the likeness of God, we have to think of the dignity of Adam as created to be the Son of God. Now we have to go further and ask, can we analyze what makes man God's image? What is it about man that makes him God's image? Now the implications of Genesis 1 and 126 and 27 in its context the implication is that man is designed for a spiritual relationship with God. So we have to we have to see that man is essentially created to be in relationship to God. Now, in the Bible, remember the question now is this. Can we analyze what makes man God's image? We have to bear in mind that in the Bible, man is presented as a unity, a unified being. In Genesis 2.7, we read, And man became a living being. A living being. I believe that uh, a number of modern <coughs> reformed theologians are right 
in, in resisting a dualistic idea of man. If you read men like John Murray, uh, Hukuma, Spikeman and others, they have taken on board that man is presented in scripture as a unity. But nevertheless, the Bible does teach that, for example, there is a spirit in man. Numbers 27 verse 16 reads, The Lord is the God of the spirits of all flesh. The well-known text in Ecclesiastes 12.7 Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And then an important text for us in Romans 8.16 we read this The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. There we have uh, an intelligent uh, exchange or communication uh, between God and the spirit of man. In other words, we are thinking about man as spiritual, as being a person, and as fitted for communion with God. But if we focus on the spirit, we must also ask the question, what about the body? Is the body of man uh, a vehicle to be God's image? (coughs) Must we define the image of God as being in the spirit of man, or must we include the body? And I would say that we must definitely include the body. It is man as a whole that is the image of God. In Genesis 9 verse 6, uh, we have uh, teaching that uh, when somebody murders another person, they are murdering someone who is created in the image of God. But if we ask the question, when a murderer uh, ends someone's life, what does he kill? What does he kill? The answer, according to Matthew 10:28, is this. He kills the body, not the soul, as it's put there. And so the combination of Genesis 9:6 and Matthew 10:28 leads us to see that uh, the body is included as the image of God. Later, we'll see that the body is renewed in the image of Christ. And so we must think of man in terms of his spirituality, his personhood, but we must not let that thought uh, lead us to discard the body. Man, as a unified being, is the image of God. Now, one other point under this uh, consideration, the text in Genesis 1.26 goes on to say, Uh, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on. Now, the the New King James that I read there leaves out the word and, and it's a bad translation. It's a bad mistake to do that. It puts in a colon instead. We should read, and let them have dominion. See, New King James says, let us make man in our image, let them have dominion. Joined together. But the Hebrew says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. Now the question has been asked, 
does the image of God uh, equal dominion over the creatures? In other words, when God speaks about creating man in his image, he then goes on to talk about having dominion over the creatures. Is he defining what he has just said? Does image equal or include dominion? Socinus said that image is dominion. When uh, Louis Berkhoff in his systematic theology uh, speaks about this, he says that there is a difference of opinion among theologians. And that's certainly right. But he goes on to say, because scripture does not express itself explicitly. Uh, I think that that is a mistake. When we read the words, and let them have dominion, scripture is being quite accurate. The word and is not an explanation of what has proceeded, but a consequence. In other words, what we should think about is this. The image of God is man's created constitution. And dominion is the authority that he has been granted appropriate to his nature. So image is man and dominion is the authority which God has granted to him. We should note uh, that dominion uh, means to rule. And that is the action of a king. Uh, in a number of places, King Solomon is spoken of as having dominion. Now, what we have here is a contrast with the ancient Near Eastern idea of a king. Uh, in the ancient Eastern world, you have texts which uh, give us the picture of the king as the son of God and the one who has dominion. What the Bible is saying is that the entire human race is put in that position. Now, I don't think that that needs to, uh, to push us towards the result uh, where we say that uh, monarchs today and kings and so on today are in conflict with God's will. Romans 13 tells us that kings reign uh, by God's will. But what we have to realize is that reflected here in Genesis 1 is that the ideal uh, is that the king should not be lifted up above his brethren. That's the ideal in Deuteronomy and in the gospel. What we in other words, what we have here is a, a question, what should a king be like in view of this text? Now, let me come back to the question that I'm dealing with now. Is the image of God dominion? And I'm saying no, dominion is a consequence of the image of God. And the New Testament development of that structure uh, bears out what I have said. In Galatians 4, verse 7, we read, uh, Paul is writing to them and he says, You are a son, you are a son. And then he says, And if a son, then an heir. See the connection? If you are a son, then you are an heir. Now the heir of God is the one who will inherit the earth. And so sonship of God is connected with the inheritance of the earth. And so we have the same structure there as with the image and dominion. If you are the image of God, 
then you have dominion. If you are a son, then you are an heir. Let me sum up. Man is created as God's image on earth. In the totality of his being, in the unity of body and spirit. Standing in a relationship with God for which his constitution fitted him. Elevated above and distinguished from all the animal species. And as a consequence granted dominion over the earth. Now that sums up the first point except for one thing. A number of uh, exegetes and theologians have observed what God says. Let us make man. And we see there that hint of plurality in God. Not let me make man, but let us make man. We have that plurality which anticipates the Trinity. Or the revelation of the Trinity. And uh, theologians, some theologians have rightly, I think, Uh, pointed out that corresponding to the trinity and the plurality in God uh, man uh, as the image of God is not to be viewed alone but the full expression of the image of God requires a corporate expression by a multitude of people so we must think not only as each man created in, in the image of God but as the human race corporately manifesting the image of God on earth. Ultimately, that will find its expression in the church as the body of Christ. Now, secondly then, my main second heading is this. What was the effect of the fall? What was the effect of the fall? Martin Luther defined the image of God as original righteousness. Luther did not take the line that I've taken so far. He said that it was the righteousness of Adam which made him God's image. And therefore, when Adam fell, Luther said that the image of God was totally obliterated. It was lost. Now, reformed thinkers usually make a distinction between the constitution of man and what we can call his accidental character or attributes. So on the one hand, they talk about man in his created constitution, and on the other hand, they talk about man in his character as righteous. And therefore, most Reformed theologians will say that man in his created constitution retained the image of God, And in his character, he lost the image of God. Now, John Murray uh, brings that definition or that analysis uh, into question. And I just want to... uh, What he really does, I think he says that uh, the, the usual way in which Reformed... Theologians analyze uh, that as the, the constitution of man retaining the image of God and the character of man 
losing it, he says, it is not apparent, it is not altogether apparent that that is biblical. So from Murray, that's as good as saying they're wrong, they're wrong, they've got it wrong. Gently, they've got it wrong. Now what he does is he says, look at the biblical evidence, and he makes us go to Genesis 9 verse 6, for example. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. In other words, what we are being told is if you murder somebody, then you are to, be, uh, to receive the death sentence. Why should a murderer be, uh, receive the death sentence? It is because the man that he has murdered is created in the image of God. Now, Murray says, if the image of God is lost, that is no longer relevant. And so what he is saying is, this is evidence that fallen man has retained the image of God. And I think that is Murray's point, that man has retained the image of God. I think what Murray is doing is he's saying to us, we must not think that the image of God has been lost at all. I've already referred once to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, where we read the words, because man is the image and glory of God. And for those of of you who uh, know Greek, uh, the word is there is not the simple word estin, but it is the verb huparchon. And it seems to me that the Greek is emphasizing that man is now existing as the image of God. In other words, it is his present existence. In his present existence, he is the image of God, not only uh, as he was created. And then in James chapter 3, verse 9, we are being told that we bless God and we curse man who is in the image of God. And there's such a contradiction in doing that. But the implication is that the man that we curse is still in the image of God. Now, texts like these are telling us that man has retained the image of God. Now, if we go, if we go that far and we say, okay, fallen man is still the image of God. Fallen man, the fall did not take away the image of God. He remained the image of God. It's been asked, does that then weaken the biblical doctrine of total depravity? Let me read uh, a quote. It has been felt that to posit man as fallen, to be in the image of God, if we say that man has fallen is in the image of God, that impinges on the doctrine of total depravity. That is, it supposes the retention by fallen man of what is intrinsically good. A good that needs no more than to be fanned into existence. In other words, it's been argued that if you say that man remains in the image of God, then all you have to do is you're saying that man is still good and you just have to encourage him to express what he is. But this writer says, it appears to me that the thinking should proceed in the opposite direction. If our analysis is correct, that the divine image defines man 
in his specific character as man, then sin is intensified in its heinousness for that very reason. In other words, what we're being told is this. The fact that man remains the image of God makes his sin far more serious than if he lost it. I believe that's right. So the first proposition is this. Man is God's image. And the second proposition is that man is fallen in sin. The first, that man is God's image, makes the second so serious. In other words, our sin is so black because we are God's image. In other words, this reveals the depth of our guilt. When we sin, we are sinning as the image of God. Now the question arises whether there is any contradiction in this position with the New Testament. I think I'm probably going to leave it as a kind of question. When the New Testament speaks about redemption, it speaks about renewing or restoring godliness in us. It speaks about renewing in us righteousness, holiness and knowledge, knowledge of the truth, knowledge of God. And it speaks about renewing those things in us as found in Jesus Christ. So that the the expressions of redemption which touch on the image of God in the New Testament are talking about renewing us in righteousness, holiness and knowledge of the truth. And there's another dimension to this as well. The New Testament talks about renewing us in respect to the body of our humiliation. So there is spiritual renewal and also physical, bodily renewal. Renewal. This body is a body of humiliation. We are subject to corruption and we will die. And yet the New Testament speaks about elevating us, restoring us and bringing us up to a spiritual body. Now it seems to me that when you take into account the New Testament evidence, you have to say something like this. The image of God was not lost, but it was corrupted by sin. I believe that the correct term is the term corrupted. That's the term used in Ephesians 4 verse 22. Now, we're asking the question, what was the effect of the fall upon the image of God? And we have to follow that through and ask the question, what about man in hell? Surely, man in hell, surely at that point, Uh, the image of God has finally been taken away. Can we say that a man consigned to eternal perdition remains the image of God? If you follow the argument that I've advanced so far, then you may be persuaded to think like this, that the seriousness And the awful nature of eternal condemnation 
is the fact that he, he, the person in hell, is still fully man. It is his nature, his created nature, as the image of God, that makes his eternal loss so serious. The creature that was made for fellowship with God in hell finally discovers the full significance of being cut off from God. Let me thirdly then come on to another question. What are the practical implications of this teaching? I have five. First of all, uh, this teaches us that man is created for God. For God. Every philosophy which contradicts this, I mean by that, I mean atheism, every form of atheism, humanism, ideas which talk about Mother Earth, all these uh, philosophies, every philosophy which contradicts the truth of man as being created for God is a lie. And fundamentally, those philosophies are harmful to man himself. In other words, they misunderstand man and they harm him. <clears throat> Secondly, man is not just another animal. Every theory which teaches that man is the highest species, obviously I'm thinking of evolution, directly contradicts the word of God. Uh, I, it may or may not be significant, I don't know. But in the last uh, 100 years or so, in English literature, there has been a great deal of humanizing of animals. I think of Beatrix Potter, Walt Disney, the, the way in which our literature and our entertainment, uh, animals are being humanized uh, and our children are being fed on ideas of animals as those that feel and think and behave like human beings. Uh, animal rights, uh, the animal rights movement or even vegetarianism, uh, if they are based on the idea that the animals are akin to man, then they are based on a fallacious foundation. Thirdly then, uh, capital punishment. It seems to me that there are two arguments against capital punishment. One is the fear of a miscarriage of justice. That's a valid fear. Once you've hung someone, you can't then acquit him. Uh, I think that uh, that would have to be tackled by stringent requirements, uh, standards of evidence. But there is another argument, and it is the argument from the sanctity of human life. You can't execute a criminal because it is an offense against the sanctity of human life. The Bible makes it clear that the death sentence for murder upholds the dignity of man as the image of God. So that capital punishment is not an assault upon the dignity of man, but it is a defense of the dignity of man. Fourthly, 
this teaching has implications for education and employment. Uh, man was created for dominion. And that tells us that he is not a slave, he is not a robot, but he needs fulfillment in his uh, employment. It also uh, leads us on to thoughts like these. Uh, utilitarian or value-for-money theories in education which put a higher value on science and engineering than on uh, cultural subjects like the arts and so on. Uh, this ignores the priority in Genesis 1, that man was first created as a spiritual being and then given dominion. I just throw that out as a uh, something for maybe someone to consider. And then fifthly, uh, and this is an entirely different point. This teaches us or underlines the absolute necessity of redemption. In a fallen world, uh, man can never fulfill uh, the, the, uh, his created nature. The Bible speaks about man's existence now as subject to futility. And what the church must emphasize is that it is only through the cross of Christ and the redemption applied to man that man can be brought to fulfillment of the image of God. Uh, this is a vital uh, aspect of the gospel. This hope of man fulfilling his destiny as the image of God is reserved for the Christian church alone. In other words, man's destiny, as anticipated in creation, uh, will be fulfilled in new heavens and new earth, when there is no more curse, and when the saints live and reign with Christ. They live and they reign with Christ. It is in Romans eight, sixteen and 17, that, the, that Paul speaks about man as glorified. Glorified. And that's what the image of God is pointing to. The glory of the image of God in his sons is finally revealed in the new creation. Augustine uh, said, well-known words, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. All our life as men is to be lived in before the face of God. Christ lived holy for God, holy for his neighbour, and will reign upon the earth. You have this when you think of Jesus Christ, you have a threefold relationship to God, to his brethren, and over the earth. And the fulfillment of the image of God in man in redemption will bring us to share in that, uh, in that, those relationships. In other words, let me, let me conclude by linking the image of God to the covenant of God and his promises. The covenant promises are first that God will be our God, we will be his people. Secondly, that his people will be a great multitude. 
and thirdly, that they will inherit the earth. In other words, the covenant promises in their fulfillment fulfill the image of God. And all that is accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thank you for listening. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I think it's been become a custom here to have a couple of minutes before the time of questioning um, to stretch, uh, not to preferably not to leave the place, but uh, to have a, a couple of minutes just to uh, stretch and uh, stand up if you want to, and then we'll have a time for questions. I'm ready to take the first the first question. So anybody have a want to start off the questions? Yes. Thank you, Dr. Naylor, for the very stimulating lecture. Um, we are told in John, the first epistle of John, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. That I suppose refers to the resurrection body in the likeness of Christ that believers will have. Uh, heard it said that that is perhaps the omega point of creation, um, that we shall be like the Saviour. Unbelievers also are resurrected. There's a resurrection to damnation. What's the difference between that resurrection body for the two and how does it bear the image of God? Yes. <laughs> Could I come back next week and... Uh, <laughs> I think there are some aspects of this that I still have uh, questions in my own mind over. Um, the, the New Testament speaks about the, uh, the resurrection body. It, it indicates that it is not simply a, a return to the creation position, but there are indications that the resurrection body is, in a way, far greater, that we're, we're not restored to the image of Adam. This is in 1 Corinthians 15, but we're taken on... Uh, into the image of Christ in his glorified body. And you get that in Philippians 3.21. Um, you know, he, he who shall transform our body into the likeness of his glorious body. And so for the believer, it's clear. Uh, I think it was as clear as we can be until that happens. But for the unbeliever, uh, it, it does leave a number of questions that we, we have to, I think, ponder over. Um, when you ask the question, is the image of God lost? This, this question, is the image of God lost? And particularly, is the image of God lost in a man in hell? On the one hand, you have the man is still a man. His body has been resurrected to the second death. And so fully the man is man. And yet, uh, on the other hand, you have the, the realization that corruption, uh, his resurrection uh, at one level is to incorruption, isn't it? Because he is not going to perish, and yet his body and soul are cast into hell. And so there is a, to a total uh, destruction. Uh, and I think you're balancing those concepts. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm helping you, you at all, really, but it's, it's the right question. And, uh, um, you know, what, what is man in hell? Man in hell is, is fully man, and yet his potential is... is virtually obliterated because he'll never accomplish what man should have should be made for um, 
So you are balancing, I think, retaining the idea that, you know, that man has not become an animal or a cabbage. And yet, uh, the, the judgment of God is so comprehensive that it incorporates body and spirit. And so that the total man is under condemnation and the execution of that sentence. I think that's the only way I could answer that question at this stage. I don't know if that's uh, good enough or whether you want to come back. Do you have any other questions? Or comments, even comments? Can I ask, didn't the understanding of the image of God in a fellow man have uh, implications or help us in our understanding of the moral law in our behaviour towards other people if we have an understanding of the nature of God in man does that, that sheds light surely on uh, the moral laws which are set out in scripture for example in James where he speaks of the tongue he says uh, uh, with a tongue we praise God and we curse man who is made in the image of God this should not be so does understanding the image of God in man help us understand the moral law I think you've got two dimensions to that. I think the answer is yes. There are two dimensions. One is the dimension of how we view our fellow man. Uh, and the other dimension is how we view ourselves. Uh, because you have, uh, you're right, I mean, James, we're, not, we're being taught uh, not to curse our fellow man. In Genesis 9-6, we're being warned against murder. These are implications. And you could, you could say that those are aspects of the command to love your neighbor, to love your neighbour as yourself, um, but the other side is it, it rebounds on us because we, as particularly as Christians, we are being called, for example, in Matthew 5:48, to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, and so the moral implications are for us as Christians being conformed to the image of God, as well as for our view of our fellow man as created in the image of God. But on both counts, I think you have moral moral implications. Any further questions? Yeah, when Jesus said, Ye are gods, was he speaking to believers or unbelievers and did he mean different things to the different people that were listening, believers and unbelievers? And yeah, he said to the Jews, didn't he? He said, uh, and the scripture says, Ye are gods, uh, quoting, I've forgotten the psalm number now. Um, someone will tell me. But, uh, but there's a lot of debate over what that, what that text means. Um, you know, some people want to say that it's, um, it doesn't mean God's literally. But he's, I think what he's doing there is he's, if you ask the purpose, what is Christ doing there? He's really saying, and the scripture cannot be broken. Is it John 10, 37, is it something like that? Uh, his point, I think, is that the scripture cannot be broken. Uh, but, but scripture, obviously, um, by teaching us that we are created in the image of God. Uh, scripture is not teaching us that we, uh, the boundary between God and man is crossed. You, know, uh, you get this question with the Christ. Is, I, I haven't ventured into the New Testament texts which talk about Christ as the image of God. And that's a, an area which I know will be taken up later. I, I think it will be taken up later by other men. But uh, when it talks about Christ as the image of God, 
uh, it qualifies that uh, with expressions which teach us that Christ is the exact image and the perfect brightness of, of God. Uh, and so we have to look at, when we come to those texts, you have to say, well, is it speaking about Christ as in, uh, with reference to his deity or with reference to his humanity? And with reference to the deity of Christ, then we do not participate in that aspect of Christ being the image of God. But with respect to his humanity, uh, that is relevant to us. As our brother, we have to be conformed to the image of Christ. So there's a lot of exegetical work has to be done in the New Testament um, in order to trace through that, uh, that area of discussion. Um, that's, I think that's all I can really say on that. Thanks. There's a verse, uh, Genesis 6, verse 2, a very interesting verse, where it says that men began to increase in number, and, and it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. Now, does that mean that there was the line of, the line of Seth, the godly line, the line of Cain, the ungodly line, two lines, and the godly line is called the sons of God? And if that's the case, is there a sense in which the image of God is referred to there implicitly in those who are believers by implication and to a lesser extent in those who are not believers? Or does it not mean that at all? <laughs> uh, yes and no and yes and no. <laughs> is that all right? <laughs> um, uh, you, um, you've obviously picked on a text that's attracted uh, exegesis of different kinds. You know, Some people read that text as the sons of God being angels. Um, others uh, want to say, no, it's the, the line of um, uh, the believing seed. Uh, it's, it's certainly clear that Genesis, the genealogies in Genesis, structure the text. And they do trace the line uh, through uh, Shem to Abraham. And uh, it, that then leads us to the question, well, what, what kind of line did Abraham come from? Because on the one hand, you have men like uh, Enoch, who walked with God. And on the other hand, if you look at Joshua 24, uh, Joshua says to the people of Israel that Terah, uh, Abraham's father, uh, the implication is that Ter- Abraham's family worshipped idols. And so it leaves you with a slight question, what kind of background did Abraham come from? Uh, but if you, if you limit, if you say, okay, the scripture doesn't answer that explicitly because it's not... Uh, particularly interested in it, it then leaves you with the fact that Genesis traces the line of the faithful or the line through which the seed will be will appear. Um, but I, I don't think that it's right to, to then say that uh, the uh, other men are less in the image of God. I, mean, I, I take the, the line that I'm, I'm really to stand close to John Murray that uh, all men retain the image of God. Uh, but in their sin... They've departed from him and the image has been corrupted. And so in that sense, from that point of view, you could say that uh, as, as man is being redeemed, as the process of sanctification goes on through faith, the image of God is being restored. We are being conformed to his image in order to be transformed to it finally. So from that perspective, yes. From the other perspective, no. That's why I said yes and no one. Oh, no one, yes. Okay. Dare I ask if there are any more questions? <laughs> well, we've got. 
I wondered, uh, Dr. Naylor, if it was possible to say a little more about the body, the image and the human body. Um, and is there a history of reformed thinking in this area? Um, I'm thinking particularly of the fact that we stand upright. And I'm thinking also of the human face, which is capable of looking up naturally. And of um, a verse like this, for example, of, we read of our Lord, who was the image of God, that he lifted up his eyes towards heaven when he prayed. Now, can, is that a valid theme for us? Um, I'm also thinking, if I may just yes. add, yeah, please I'm do. also thinking of the many respects in which sin produces the result of people looking down. Mm. <coughs> I think that, uh, if I keep my mind clear, uh, the scripture, it seems to me, is clear that the image of God that in, includes the body. Uh, I'm not aware of anywhere in scripture which teaches that, that that uprightness, walking on two legs rather than on all fours, I'm not aware of anywhere that teaches that that is the case. But I can understand uh, that line of extrapolating. Um, I, I'm, I'm always uh, conscious, you know, the curse uh, uh, and the way the curse outworks, the corruption of the body. You find, with particularly with old people, they stoop. And maybe that was what you were uh, thinking of. I, I, I know my uh, my own mother is um, very unwell, and, and she is bent over. And you realise that that is not what man should be. But uh, I, I don't know myself of any place in Scripture where that is explicitly or even clearly implicitly taught. Uh, I, I would tend to, uh, my own approach is always to limit myself to what I can clearly see uh, being the purpose of the text of Scripture. C- can you see what I'm saying? There, there are lots of interesting side uh, sidelights, I think, on our experience. And we may be justified in, in looking at, at it in that way. Um, I mean, maybe somebody else does know, but uh, I don't at the moment. Okay. Well, perhaps we should uh, we should we should uh, end the questions there. Can I just uh, say thank you very much once again for coming? It's been a, a very helpful um, evening. There's been an awful lot uh, t- covered, and I know some of it's. It takes quite a lot of thought, uh, so we're very grateful to uh, the fact that we've got all these, uh, all the tapes available of all the, um, all of our lectures. Uh, they're available. You can order the tape at the bookstore. Um, there are just in terms of other notices. There are also there's a large bookstore. And um, the good news for anybody who uh, s- uh, starts getting worried about Christmas at this stage. Um, dreading the thought of what they're going to buy everybody uh, we've got a bookstall out there and, and the good news for anybody who's tight uh, there's 25% off everything on the bookstall so all being well that can take some of the stress of Christmas away before you even leave tonight so you can leave with all your presents and have it all over and done with um, <coughs> since we last had an autumn lecture there's been a lot of things happened at the Christian Institute um, if, you, uh, don't, um, if you're not on our mailing 
list, uh, do pick up one of these annual reports uh, which uh, we produce. That gives a very clear summary of our work over the last um, year. Uh, they're available on the bookstore. Stall. And um, in, over the last few months, we've held a number of lectures, uh, apart from the autumn lectures uh, last year. Uh, we've had a series of lectures on, uh, in the Faith and Education series. Um, the, the chairman of the Christian Institute, John Byrne, did the first one on the school, organisation, ethos and curriculum. And since then, we've been going through different um, specific subjects. Paul Hewlett uh, did a very useful one on the teaching of mathematics. Um, Nigel McCoy recently has done one on um, the teaching of English literature and Stephen Layfield who's now, uh, who I believe is joining um, uh, the staff of Emmanuel in January did an excellent one on the teaching of science very helpful, the booklets are available in the bookstall for 150 uh, they're also available on tape and again for those who are, are more uh, financially cautious you can download them off the internet uh, free of charge <laughs> And uh, finally, there was also an, uh, an excellent meeting that many people would have been to, Dr. Lennox uh, from the Whitfield Institute. Uh, a few uh, weeks ago, did one on, has science buried God? And uh, tapes of that are available as well. And you can order one of those here. So it's been, uh, uh, we've had quite a busy uh, few months in terms of, of meetings. Um, also, the website, just to draw attention to our website, uh, for those of you who are online and haven't looked at it for quite a while, it's been quite significantly revamped over the last few months, and uh, there's a lot to see on there. Uh, you may want to have a look at that. So let us, um, just uh, before we end in prayer, I should just say some thank yous. Uh, can I thank uh, George Curry and Catherine for allowing us to use uh, this place once again this year as a venue and uh, for hosting uh, for George, who's organised these lectures, uh, done most of the organising of these lectures this year. We're very grateful to him. Uh, very grateful, too, to Peter Sword for uh, recording all these and making these uh, tapes available to people who aren't able to be here and people throughout the country uh, who couldn't travel here, and also to Judith, who helps with refreshments. So thank you to all those involved. Can we just uh, close in prayer? Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to meet here tonight and to study your word, and we thank you uh, for what we've heard tonight, and we recognise there is much that we don't understand, that we can't understand, uh, that you are a, an amazing God and we are a people with limited minds and yet we thank you for what we have heard tonight and uh, we thank you that uh, uh, we will have eternity to consider these things uh, and to uh, be amazed at your greatness and your power. We do pray, however, that uh, we would have a greater uh, concern for your glory as a result of what we've heard tonight. We pray, too, that you'd give us a greater um, desire to reach out to the lost who were uh, made in your image uh, are under your judgment we pray that we would recognise just how awful the thought of eternity uh, without you in hell uh, would be and we pray that you would fire us up uh, to have a greater love for the lost and concern to reach out to those around us who uh, are under your judgment and so we thank you for tonight and we pray that you, t that you would uh, help us to consider what we've heard and to apply these truths uh, to our lives. In your name, amen. amen.